tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Episode 14 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. I often recommend podcasts to our listeners, shows which might interest the horror fiction-loving fans out there. But I've recently been sent a disturbing notice regarding the podcast The Grey Rooms, I've been informed that you should not listen to their third season, which premiered on November 27th. Yes, it's available on podcast apps everywhere, but I've learned that this anthology show, which has featured a number of no-sleep authors on past episodes, should be avoided. Just because it features an overarching narrative in which the room's guest is forced to choose a door and experience an anthology tale of terror and death does not mean it's suitable for anyone's ears. And yes, voice actors like Graham Rowett, Aaron Lillis, Sarah Thomas, and even a a, a D. Cummings have been heard on the show, so that's reason enough to avoid it at all costs. Wait, wait, I'm getting a sneaking suspicion that this notice is using reverse psychology in order to trick people into listening to it. Very diabolical of them. So, The Grey Room Season 3 premiere is available wherever you get your horror fix. You should download with extreme caution. Or should you? Anyway, one show you shouldn't avoid is the No Sleep Podcast. So now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale we satisfy our sweet tooth. We've all visited those stores which specialize in all manner of sweet treats and sugary confections. But in this tale, shared with us by author Charlie Hughes, we meet a woman who discovers the truth about one such store in her hometown, a store her parents warned her over and over again to never step foot in. Performing this tale are David Alt, Erica Sanderson, and Andy Cresswell. So stay away from the sugar and those dreaded carbs. They aren't the only things worth avoiding from the candy shop. Jenny Wilshaw slowed her step as the building came into view. It had been closed for longer than she could remember. The purple paint on the door and windows had crusted and peeled over the years. When she was still young enough to hold her mother's hand, Jenny would grip a little tighter as they passed by, tempted to peer inside its black windows, but never quite brave enough to do so. Even the name was wrong. Candy an American word. 
The town was as un-American as England got. Up ahead, across the road from the shop, Wilf Jenkins sat on a chair in front of the horseshoe pub, smoking a cigarette. The old landlord refused to serve her alcohol a few weeks before, but he was nice about it and didn't seem to mind her trying. She stopped in front of him. He looked thinner than the last time they'd spoken, paler too. You got a nice cold Coke for me, Wilf? Always got one for paying customers, little Jenny. What if they ain't got no cash? He smiled, the deep pitted lines on his face reminding her of maps at school. Well, depends who's asking. For a freebie, daughter of Bobby Wilshaw might have a better chance than most. He stood, disappeared into the open door of the pub, and came out a few seconds later with a bottle of Coke and a tall glass, misty with frost. She beamed, playfully applauding him. They sat on the white iron chairs, separated by a matching table. There was nowhere else to look except across the road, towards the candy shop. Must be strange all these years having to look over at that. You think? For sure. Gives me the creeps. Well, maybe I like it there. Just where I can see it. She turned to him and noted the curious smile twitching at the edge of his lips. Imar Odar ever tell you about it? Not much. They both said stay away. Still do. You know about the kids? Everyone knows about that. He sniffed. I'll bet there's plenty you don't know. She'd googled it a few times, but the details taken from the old papers were sketchy and difficult to understand. Who'd have thought old Wilf Jenkins might finally be the person to spill the beans? She imagined telling Rosie and Jess all about it, the look of disbelief on their faces. You want to share? Hmm. Your dad wouldn't thank me. Come on, Wilf, I'm curious. I don't think... He shifted in his chair. Well, I don't want to take it with me, but I don't know. She knew the maudlin tone better than she liked. Her grandmother spoke that way before the end. You okay, Wilf? Nope. Doctors give me six months. Big C. Throat. These damn things. He stubbed out the cigarette. Jenny's mouth fell open. They sat in silence for a while. I should go. Wolf raised his chin and looked to the sky. Stay a while, Jenny. Thinking on it, perhaps I should tell what I know. He gestured towards the shop with his cigarette. I'll be gone soon, and it might stand you young uns in good stead. Jenny bit her bottom lip and leaned in towards Wilf. The rumors only started when a third kid disappeared. Police didn't make the connection until a child from a good family went missing. Good family? It was the 60s. The first two came from the council estate. He said this as if it should make sense. Okay. They were all on their way to the candy shop. All three of the kids. Everyone knows that now. And that's why your mom and dad want you to stay away. He lit another cigarette. 
Babs was the old lady who ran the place. They all said she went strange because of the rumors. She didn't. I was nine years old. She lost it before the kids went missing. Only a few days, but before. You ask anyone who was a kid at the time. Lovely lady, Babs Samson was. Fat old mare with curly grey hair dyed this weird shade of yellow-brown. We went in that place for the sweets, but I think we liked being mothered too. My own mom ran off when I was little. Babs had this funny way with kids. She badgered us, told us to keep our hands to ourselves, told us to stay away from her cat, and never ever gave more than a quarter when she weighed the sweets, but... He took a deep, long drag from the cigarette. Jenny heard the tobacco smolder. But she did it all with love. She'd asked me about my dad and my brother, and tell me about the new suite she had in, knowing all the while that I only ever wanted the sherbet flying saucers. Flying saucer mad you are! You'll turn into a saucer, Wilf Jenkins! His impersonation of the old woman was affectionate. That's the funny thing about the candy shop. These days, it's the boogeyman. When I was a kid, it was a treasure trove. A place to gather the sweetest, finest things we could imagine. He clasped his hands. So, one day, we go in there. Me and my mate Ronnie Mayo... He wanted some gobstoppers, and I'd scrapped together a few pennies for my saucers. I remember it clear as the day is long. I pushed open the door and the bell sounded like it did in all the old shops. The moment we went in, I knew something was wrong. Normally, when you went in, Babs would be sat on her stool behind the counter, ready to greet you. Not that day. There was a table in front of the counter with all the lollies and sherbet dips. Chocolate and taffy bars were on the left. The entire right-hand wall sealing the floor was for the shelves of sweets, all stored in glass jars. Bonbons, sherbet dips, rhubarb and custards, chocolate eclairs. She had the lot. Ronnie nudges me and says, She's not here, and gives me this look. And I knew what it meant, because I'd seen it so many times before. Mischief. He was thinking, here we are in the candy shop, and the old lady's gone, so let's fill our pockets with goodies and clear out. I don't know what the kids would call me now, a pet, a square. Anyway, I didn't want to steal, even if I got away with it. I shook my head, and Ronnie said, suit yourself. Off he went to the jars, grabbing whatever he could get his hands on. I froze, stock still, caught between the idea of Babs walking in and shoring the knowledge that Ronnie would be ragging me for months. I waited all of ten seconds before whispering to him, Come on, that's enough, let's go. He looked over his shoulder, gave me the clock clock chicken noise and went right on pilfering. I was about to go then. Wilf grimaced and shook his head. 
Hardly a day goes by when I don't wish I'd just walked out. But you know what kids are like? You stick by your friends, don't you? Even when they're in the wrong. Jenny thought of her own friends and acknowledged this truth with a slow nod of her head. Instead of walking out, I went up to Ronnie, grabbed him by the shoulder and said, Come on, that's enough. From where I was stood, I could see behind the counter. So when I turned round, I saw the cat. The cat? Pickles, the sharp cat. I petted that thing more times than I can remember. Friendly, it was. Always wanted to be scratched behind its ears. But there it was, flopped down on the floor. There was no blood, no obvious injury, but it was dead. Cats don't lie that way, with their head all twisted and their legs splayed. I said, Jesus, and Ronnie finally turned his attention away from the jars. He had his shirt full by then. He pulled it out in front of him like a kangaroo. There were piles of sweets in there. He saw Pickles, and I think it shocked him out of it. There was a noise from out back. A voice, real faint. No words, just a hint of some horrible, desperate wailing. Ronnie moved sharpish then, rushed to the door, opened it and turned back with me going nowhere. Wilf, he said. But I'd heard what I heard, and I thought old Babs might be in some trouble. I'll share, Ronnie said. I'll always remember that. He thought that would make me come with him. When I shook my head, he bolted, left me with a bell ringing in my ears. Someone shouted from inside the pub. Wilf, fight. The old man looked over his shoulder, then back to Jenny. Oh, Judy calls. Let's go inside. I can tell you the rest at the bar. Jenny hesitated. She could stay out a little longer, but her parents wouldn't like her going into the pub on her own. Wilf must have seen the doubt in her eyes. He smiled. It's okay if the landlord says so. They both stood and went into the pub. Her eyes took a few seconds to adjust to the interior of the pub. The horseshoe, with its low ceilings and sepia-brown decor, seemed a world away from the bright sunlight outside. She climbed onto a stool, and Wilf, who'd installed himself on the other side of the bar, placed another Coke in front of her. The only other person in the pub was a small bald man sat in the corner. Jenny couldn't see his face, and she wondered if it was someone who knew her parents, someone who might tell on her. Before she could ask, Wilf continued. Where was I? The the sound, yes. When Ronnie left, the sound came again, whimpering, like someone was in pain. I stepped over the cat and went through the door behind the counter. I'd seen that door a thousand times before, seen through to the beginnings of Babs' home. The stairs, the sink in the kitchen at the back, and the window looking out onto the churchyard. I called out, Babs, it's me, Wilf. Just want to check you're okay. The whimpering came again, and this time I could hear where it came from. Ahead of me, 
On the left was a closed door. I walked on, past the stairs, and towards the door. When I got there, it took all the courage I had to open it. The old man placed both his palms down on the bar and drew a deep breath. I've never told anyone what I'm about to tell you. This was more than 50 years ago. I never told my own brother, my dad, not Ronnie Mayo, not anybody. I could have said something to the police when those children disappeared, but I didn't. Partly because I knew how it would sound, but mostly because I was scared. Scared that if I did tell, it would be me next. Jenny became aware of her own heart pounding, the thud, thud rising up around her neck and ears. What was behind the door? You'll believe me, won't you? You won't think I'm crazy. I won't. He nodded and went on. I opened that door and saw the whole scene in one. My brain could hardly take it in. Babs was on her knees. That was one thing. She was on her knees in front of a hole in the floor. I'd like to tell you more to use a cleverer word, but that's what it was. A hole. There was dirt all around it like something had burrowed up through the floorboards, through the carpet of her living room, and she was kneeling next to it. She had blood all down the front of her clothes, like a butcher, and there was soil from the ground everywhere. Her eyes were wild. What happened then? She saw me, looked right at me and smiled. There was something wrong with her. Old Babs's face seemed twisted, wrong. I swear to you, this is what she said next, word for word. Wilf Jenkins, you're a good boy, but you're not good enough. It only feeds on the very best. I said... Babs, what's the matter? What's going on? But she ignored me and kept rambling. It only wants the best ones, Wilf. The very best. So I said, what do you mean? It came out from there, under the ground. And she pointed out to the churchyard. By this point, I'm beside myself. I remember looking at my little hand on the doorknob and seeing it shaped like nobody's business. I says... Come on, Babs, we gotta get you cleaned up. His voice raised an octave like a little boy. She was having none of it. She was just saying what was going round and round in her head, and her eyes, Jenny, I can't describe how wild she was in the eyes. What she says next, on my honour, this is what she says. It's giving me a list, Wilf. I've got a list so I can get the right sweeties. That's nice, ain't it? I'm good at getting sweeties and she held up a tiny piece of paper. Against the light, I could see the outline of what was on the other side. Spidery handwriting, and three lines, two words on each. And suddenly, Wolf went quiet. He stared out over the bar and the tables to the wall on the far side. His eyes had gone far away, and Jenny knew that he was looking past the wall into the candy shop across the street. What did the words say? She was certain Wilf was not going to tell her, 
that he would just snap out of his reverie like a man waking from a light nap. He would ask her what she thought she was doing in his pub, if he hadn't been clear enough the last time, but he didn't say any of those things. Instead, he turned to her and spoke softly. I couldn't make that happen, but I know in my bones what they were. Three names. The names of little children I knew. A shudder ran through Jenny. She had so many questions, but she could see Wilf wasn't finished. The poor man was close to tears. She couldn't imagine keeping such a secret for so many years. After she held up that piece of paper, everything went quiet. I don't know how long we were there, just looking at each other. But then something shifted in the hole. I'm not going to tell you I saw it, Jenny, because I didn't. The moment I saw that soil move, I was gone. Out into the shop and through the door like shit off a stick. That is so... Whoa! And the worst thing was, as the days went by and those poor little ones went missing, I knew. And I didn't say a word. Babs was right. They were the best. Alice Daniels was the kindest little girl you ever did meet. Paul Scott was a hero to all the young lads, great at sports, but never a bully, always had time for you. And Peter White, smartest kid in town, but a gem too. Seven, nine, and eleven they were. All their lives in front of them. And... Wilf broke down, dropping his head into his arms on the bar, sobbing. (laughs) Jenny, immediately self-conscious, looked across at the man in the corner, but he was gone. It was just her and Wilf in this conversation. Don't cry. Eventually, Wilf calmed himself and raised his head. The eyes that met her now were different, harder than before. I'm sorry, Jenny. It wasn't your fault. That's not what I mean. There was silence between them, and Jenny noticed the other man suddenly near her, walking towards the front door of the pub. I'm sorry. Jenny dropped down from the stool. I've got to go. She started for the door, but the bald man stood in front of it, his back to her, his face still hidden. Up close now, she noticed the dirt and soil covering his top coat. A bolt slid into place. The man turned around. He was old, so old. His head twitched from side to side in a strange jerking movement, like his skull and neck were tied together with elastic. There was no face, not in a normal way of things. He stopped twitching and a sickening, cracking sound came from inside. Jenny would have done anything to get away, to be held by her mother and father, but her limbs would not obey her. The man's head opened at the top to reveal a gaping hole at the peak of his cranium. A thin line of yellow blood trickled down the head where the face should have been. Once it was fully open, it closed, then opened again, flexing. More cracking and a jaw filled with huge white teeth attached to a stem. Little tight ropes of phlegm dangled between the incisors. 
her eyes wide with terror, Jenny turned back to Wilf. He held up a small piece of paper, three names written in a spidery hand. She didn't get past the top line. He only feeds on the best ones, Jenny. Only the very best. As we get closer to winter, tis the season of increasingly poor weather. Snowstorms can bring horror to the roads and even those trying to stay safe and sound indoors. And in this tale, shared with us by author James Turnbow, we meet a college RA who has to make sure the students in his dorm are cared for when a huge blizzard hits and traps everyone inside. I join Mike Delgadio, Mary Murphy, Matthew Bradford, Nicole Goodnight, Jessica McAvoy, Danielle McRae, and Jeff Clement in performing this tale. So keep warm, don't panic, and try to survive the storm while you're living in Lawrence Hall. I watched the slow curl of steam rise from my mug as I pulled it up to my face to take a drink. The portly weatherman on TV stood in front of a graphic that promised we would see record-breaking snowfall in just a few hours. I rolled my eyes. My pager beeped loudly, causing me to jump and spill coffee into my lap. Shit. I wiped away the residue before answering. This is Jason in Lawrence Hall. Go ahead. My boss's voice crackled back at me. Hey, Jason. It's Scott. You guys all set? I hated that we had to use these things. It was part phone and part walkie-talkie, but someone had started calling them pagers at some point, and the name stuck. Yeah, we got Lawrence shoveled and sanded, sidewalks are clear, the heaters are running full blast, and most of the students are cozied up already. Awesome. I sure appreciate that, buddy. Hey, did Mia and Chris decide to stick around? I looked down at the two students lying on my office floor, scrolling aimlessly on their phones. Both of them were hard workers and dependable. That's why I had begged them to stay and ride out the storm. They sure did. Well, good deal. It sounds like you have everything under control over there. I'm going to check in around campus, but if you need anything, just give a holler. Sounds good to me. I placed the pager back on my desk and watched the snow continue to pile up outside from my office window. The evening turned to night, and before I knew it, I was alone it was well past 10 o'clock. I leaned back in my chair and let out a great yawn, stretching my whole body out. I started to type on my computer, but a loud bang and a fit of laughter interrupted my work. 
I stepped out of my office into the lobby of our building and looked over to the main entrance where I saw two students shivering and giggling loudly. One of them repeatedly banged on the door. She was saying something, but I couldn't hear what it was. I immediately recognized the pair. They were part of a trio that had been in my office for conduct meetings and policy violations more times than I cared to count. The young ladies had potential, though, so we tried to cut them a break when we could. I approached the doors and leaned in close to the glass. Where are your IDs, girls? You know it's policy to keep them on you at all times. The two just laughed off my comments, so I opened the door. Cool wind struck me and carried with it the strong scent of alcohol. The girls hurried and scuffled inside, bringing with them lots of snow. They tried to rush into the elevator, but I stopped them before they could. I quickly realized they were drunk. Very drunk. Come on, ladies, how many times do we have to have this conversation? You know you can't keep coming to campus like this. (laughs) I grabbed my pager and asked Mia to come down to the lobby. And you guys wonder why I moved you next to Mia's room? I hoped being so close to an RA would straighten you up a little bit. Where's Kayla at anyways? She said she was staying earlier when I talked to her. Sarah seemed to have found her voice. (sighs) She's chicken out. (laughs) We told her to stay with us, but she wanted to go home to her mom. (laughs) Lame. (laughs) Can you believe that? Haley joined the conversation, throwing her head back with laughter. (laughs) Yeah, what a bitch. But we love her, though. She's our bitch. I looked out at the parking lot where several inches of snow blanketed the ground. The last thing I wanted was a student to drive in this weather. Is she the one that drove you both back here? No, Tommy did. He dropped Kayla off at her car. We had to get a few rounds at the brick pit in before we're cooped up with all these losers. (laughs) Well, how much did Kayla drink? Is she alright to drive home? Yeah. (laughs) She's fine. Kayla's been doing this a long time, okay? She called her mom, and even her mom said she was good to drive. Let the car defrost a few minutes, a cup of coffee from 7-Eleven, and on the way she'll be. No big deal. We all jumped at the sound of the elevator ding behind us. Mia stepped out with a smile, perky as ever. She walked over to the pair and ushered them into the elevator. Fun night, ladies. We'll get you all settled in and off to bed in no time. You both better remember to come by and schedule a conduct meeting first thing Monday morning. The two girls returned my request with a roll of their eyes. Mia, will you and Chris stop and do a wellness check on Tweedledee and Tweedledum here during second rounds to make sure they haven't gotten into any more trouble? Sure thing, boss. She barely got the words out before the elevator closed. I reached into my pocket and switched my pager to the channel used by campus police. I waited for the go-ahead from dispatch before speaking. Hey, it's Jason over in Lawrence. We have a student who will be leaving campus soon. Name is Kayla Reedy. I think she's been drinking pretty heavily. I was hoping some officers could check in on her before she takes off. She'll be in a blue Malibu here in our parking lot. I could barely hear the dispatch officer over the noise in the station. Phones were ringing, people were yelling, and a siren played on a loop. He assured me that they would send someone over and they hurried off the phone. The wrecks must have already started, I thought. I looked one last time at the parking lot and decided to head up to my room. 
I didn't sleep well that night. My blankets felt like a prison. The wind outside blew with a steady, haunting howl. I tossed and turned for hours until I finally rolled out of my bed and stumbled towards my window. The parking lot was so white my eyes burned when I looked at it. I watched the snow dance across the parking lot until it found a home on the far side where the drifts settled halfway up the building. I chuckled to myself. (laughs) The weatherman didn't lie for once. In fact, he may have undersold the storm. My eyes suddenly caught movement. One of the larger drifts seemed to be shaking back and forth. I wiped my eyes and looked again, but it was no illusion. The shape was moving as if it was made of jello. I watched it for a while. It would shake violently, then lull to a sway before picking back up. I went to reach for my phone, knowing that a quick internet search could explain this phenomenon, but was cut short by the sound of my pager going off. This is Jason and Lawrence. The only reply I got was an eerie crackling. Hello? It's Jason here in Lawrence. Is anyone there? The unsettling white noise continued. I listened intently for clues as to who might be calling this late. I doubted it was accidental, but it could have been. My heart jumped a beat and I dropped the pager out of fear. I stood there, motionless. The words became less distorted with each passing second, and soon I made out what they were. I heard them clear as day, a small, silent whisper. Cold. It's so cold. The wind outside picked up to a deafening scream. I placed my hands around my ears to block out all the noise and I retreated to the bathroom. I slammed the door behind me and ducked under the sink. The wind and the screams, the static and the sobs, it all morphed into one terrible sound and I just wanted it to go away. The noise outside climaxed. I thought my head was going to burst under the weight of it. The howling stopped suddenly, but the silence left in its wake seemed louder. I turned the faucet on and splashed cold water on my face. My trembling reflection stared back at me in silence for what felt like hours. I gave myself a few light slaps, took a deep breath, and stepped back into my bedroom. To my horror, the pager still lay on the floor where I had dropped it. It wasn't some crazy dream. I picked it up and held it close to my face, looking it over in great detail. It seemed all right, so I removed the batteries and did a soft reset. I convinced myself that it shorted out, and the sound of the storm outside just got the best of me. The whole ordeal left me exhausted. I watched the flurry of white outside my window and drifted off to sleep. The next morning was absolute chaos. The storm was much worse than anyone had predicted. The sound of several loud bangs on my door pulled me from my slumber. I threw a t-shirt on and opened the door. I was surprised at the number of students that met me in the hall. My heart sped up rapidly and I felt a knot form in my stomach. Something was wrong. Guys, it's too early for this. What's the deal? Mia peeked out from behind the frame of one of the football players. Her voice was shaky. She looked pale. My heart picked up its pace. I had never seen Mia even slightly nervous. I tried to call, but the pager wasn't working. We can't leave. The doors won't open. The words hung in the air for a moment as I tried to process them. What do you mean the doors won't open? It's probably just the drifts. The snow is heavy No, it's more than that. Guys, I'm going to step inside and chat with Jason. We'll be right back out. Can you meet me back in the lobby in about 15 minutes? Go grab some breakfast. 
She flashed the group a smile. They seemed to be satisfied enough with this plan, so they slowly dispersed and walked back down the hallway. I motioned for Mia to come inside. As soon as the door shut behind her, she fell into the couch in sobs. She was teetering on the edge of losing it completely. I gave her a few moments before I spoke. Mia, what's going on? She inhaled sharply, squeezing the space between her eyes at the top of her nose. None of the doors will open. All of the doors that lead outside are jammed or something. We're stuck here. Mia, that's impossible. I'll go down right now and check them out. Why the hell would anyone want to go out in that weather anyways? I looked out the window where pale violet and orange battled the sea of snow and ice. The blizzard was still raging. It's not just that. Have you checked your phone? No one has service. Even the Wi-Fi is down. I went to my bedroom and retrieved my cell phone and pager. I checked the home screen of my phone. No service. I tried every channel that was available on the pager. Nothing. Mia looked up at me and I watched large tears well up in her eyes. And... And there was blood. All over the floor. God, I didn't know what to do. Blood? Blood where? Mia, what happened? The knot in my stomach grew tighter. In our bathroom. It was coming from Sarah and Haley's room. Under the door. I checked on them last night and they were fine. Oh, I... I was on my way up here when the students stopped me and told me about the doors. I reached for the pager again. Scott, it's Jason over in Lawrence. Pick up. I paused for a moment, then continued out of frustration. Pick up, damn it. We're dealing with some heavy shit over here. We might have an injured student. I'm going down now to see what's going on. My words were met with silence. I turned back to Mia. Hey, we'll get this figured out. Have you talked to Chris? No. You know how he likes to sleep. He won't be up until noon. She wiped her face and took a deep breath to collect herself. Go get him up, and both of you meet me back at your room. We need to check on Sarah and Haley. I'll go down and grab their extra room key. A small group of students were in the lobby when I arrived. One of the boys was desperately trying to force the door open. I watched as he gripped the handle and pulled with every ounce of strength he had. When that didn't work, he shook it violently. My voice startled them. Hey guys, cut it out. We're working on it now. The doors will be open in a few minutes. Everything is fine. Go grab some food. I stepped into the key room before they could reply, but heard the shuffle of their footsteps as they went up. When I got back to Mia's room, she and Chris were waiting on me. I had hoped that Chris would be able to lighten things up, but the morning's news seemed to have broken even his impossible positivity. Chris looked tired and scared. We've knocked a few times, but no one's answered. We didn't hear anyone moving around either. Sarah? Haley? It's Jason. I'm out here with the RAs. Are you guys okay? A heavy silence followed my words. Hey guys, we're gonna key in, alright? We want to do a wellness check. We'll be in and out. The three of us looked at each other and I put the key into the lock. The deadbolt slid over and the door opened with a slow creak. The smell of stale alcohol and vomit greeted us as we walked in. Mia was the first one to scream, followed by Chris. I tried, but when I opened my mouth, all that came out was bile and sickness. Sarah lay there alone in the middle of the floor. Blood and foam leaked from the edges of her mouth, 
where a bottle of whiskey sat forced deep into her throat. Her cheeks were ripped all the way down to the edge of her jaw, and the wicked smile she wore was a stark contrast to the fear in her bulging yellow eyes. I shut the door behind us and locked it before any students came to investigate the screams. I began to get dizzy, and the room started to spin around me. I watched Chris stumble over to one of the beds and grab a blanket, which he used to cover Sarah's body. I fell to the floor with my hands on my head. What? What the fuck happened to her? How is that even... Fuck! My fist met the wall as the last word left my mouth. We need to get the police. Someone here had to have done this. Someone in the building. My voice was that of a child who just found out the boogeyman was real. How are we going to do that? We can't get out. None of the phones are working. Hold up. Isn't there an emergency phone in the basement? The red one in the old storm shelter. He was right. There was an old hardline phone that connected directly to the campus police station down there. I wasn't sure if it even still worked, but it was worth a shot. Mia's voice was soft, but it startled us. Where's Haley? She had to have seen or heard something. What if she's the one that did it? We both caught the coldness in Chris's voice. No, she wouldn't have. Her her and Sarah were best friends. We need to find her and just talk to her. Chris started to speak but was cut short by the sound of my pager going off. I grabbed it in a frenzy, relief washing over me. Finally, some help. This is Jason and Lawrence. Is that you, Scott? God, I sounded so desperate. I heard a woman's voice over the static, but it was barely audible. The signal must have been really weak. Hello? Ma'am? Can you send someone to help? We're in Lawrence Hall. We have a student that's been murdered. The whispers continued until the voice was suddenly plain as day. I'm coming for them. My stomach dropped. It was the same voice from last night, but this time it wasn't crying or in a panic. It was purposeful, deliberate even. Who the hell was that? I hit the pager against my hand to hide my shaking. I don't know. This damned thing's been bugging out. It has to be picking up other signals or something. It did the same thing last night. Well, do you think they'll send someone? I looked to the body of the student that had been killed and shook my head, fighting back the tears. I I wouldn't count on it. I think that phone is our best bet. Let's get headed down there. We can't let this happen again. The three of us could feel the chill of the basement as soon as we stepped into the stairwell. As we made our way down, the temperature plummeted. Didn't make sense. The basement was heated just like the rest of the building. Once we reached the bottom of the landing, I was shocked to find the heavy basement door open. Guys? Was this shut when you did your rounds last night? Yeah, it was locked tight. I even pulled it to make sure. Who could have opened it? I'm the only one that has access. Hey, who was that? You can't be down here. It's against policy and it's not safe. Let's just go see who it is. I'm sure it's a group of freshmen or something just trying to pull a prank. Freshmen? Have you forgotten about the dead body upstairs? Someone murdered her, Chris. This doesn't feel good. Well, regardless, we have to get to that phone. The storm shelter is at the other end next to the old union. Let's just go and we'll deal with them when we find them. We stepped into the blue-gray void that was the basement. The area had served as the university's cafeteria and student center in a long time gone. It had been condemned years ago, but there was always a handful of students that found their way in to graffiti the walls or bust a hole in something. 
Man, I forgot how big it was down here. Neither of us answered as we continued to walk forward. The lights from our cell phones reflecting on the graveyard of kitchen appliances. We went the rest of the way in silence except for the occasional shiver. It seemed to be getting even colder as we went further in. I turned the light off on my phone when we reached the entrance to the old student union. I motioned for Mia and Chris to hang back while I peered through the small porthole on the entrance door. I could see small rays of light shining through the row of windows that lined the ceiling. Most of the floor was covered in a blanket of snow. How can that be? I heard a loud crash and pushed the door open to see further in. A lone figure stood at the opposite end of the student union. Tattered tables and chairs surrounded them. Haley, what are you doing down here? Mia and Chris pushed their way into the room at the mention of Haley's name. How did you even... I didn't mean for it to happen. She had a crowbar in her hand. Shards of glass lay littered around her feet, which were bare, except for a thin trail of blood that traced her path back to the first window she had busted. I did my best to sound calm. Haley, what happened to Sarah? Why are you down here breaking the windows? Put down the crowbar and come talk to us. It was an accident. I tried to tell her. I told her we were sorry. But it has to be this way. She said so. I have to know what it's like. Haley turned her back to us and began swinging at the windows with a madness that matched her voice. I have to know what it feels like. Sarah did her part. Now it's my turn. Mia started to approach her. Who said? Haley, you don't have to do anything. Come back upstairs and we can talk about all this. Just put that thing down. You're bleeding. We don't want you to get hurt anymore. Haley continued to smash the windows, ignoring our pleas. After the last one was broken, she collapsed onto the floor, writhing in bits of glass and tears. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> I did what you asked. I'm sorry. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I can feel the cold now. We watched her pitiful shape for a few moments before Mia began to slowly creep towards her. Chris reached out and grabbed her shoulder. You can't. It's dangerous. That's my friend. I'm not going to leave her here to bleed to death. She's obviously had some kind of mental break. Before Chris could protest further, the pager at my side began to crackle with an ominous static. The three of us stared in disbelief as we heard laughter break through the crackles and hums. Cold? You think this is cold? I'll show you cold. At the last word, the room we were standing in began to tremble. We heard a thunderous rumbling outside that was getting louder with each passing second. I watched in horror as an avalanche of snow and ice began to pour into the room from the windows Haley had just busted open. Haley pulled her knees to her chest and began to rock back and forth, screaming something that I couldn't make out over all the noise. You two, get out of here! You have to go now! I'll get to the phone! Chris hesitated for a moment before taking a hold of Mia's hand and running with her for the exit. I turned back to where Haley sat on the floor and sprinted towards her. 
couldn't leave her down here. Time seemed to slow as I raced against the raging snow that was pushing its way into the room. The cold air burned my lungs. Each step was a mouthful of fire. I was almost to her side when a mangled and blackened arm burst from the window above her head. The hand reached straight down and took a hold of Haley by her hair. Her eyes widened as the fingers spread across her scalp. I could see frozen tears that clung to her face as I reached for her trembling hand. But I was too late. The thing, whatever it was on the other side of that arm, lifted Haley and began to pull her through the window. Haley's cries for help were muffled by the snow as she was pulled into the icy abyss. Her back caught against the glass still set in the window, and the shards tore bits of flesh from her body as she was drugged through. In an instant, a wispy steam and chunks of red muscle clinging to the window were all that were left of her. I stood there, staring at the empty space until the snow crashing in around me forced me to move. I turned and began to run towards the old storm shelter. I couldn't let my students down. I refused to let any more of them die. I hurtled over tables and chairs as I struggled to reach the phone. I could feel the stampede that was the snow biting at my heels when I finally crossed the threshold. I slammed the door behind me and dove over a small couch to reach the blocky red telephone. I pulled it from the receiver and waited, breathless. No dial tone. No ringing. Come on. Come on, goddammit. You have to work. Each second seemed like an eternity. The snow had arrived outside with a crash, and the door creaked and groaned loudly under its weight. Hello? Is someone there? Does this phone even work? Hey, Dave, this phone just started ringing. You know anything about- Listen, this is Jason. I work in Lawrence Hall. Two students have been killed. You need to get officers here right now. There was a loud metallic pop as one of the hinges on the door broke and ricocheted off a vent beside my head. I watched as snow began to pour into the room. I don't have much time. Just get over here, now. I'm in the basement, please. I dropped the phone and let the receiver hang. I heard the dispatch officer grow frantic. I looked around. I had to work fast. The snow and ice were piling in with me and there wasn't much space in the room. I lifted one end of the couch and dragged it across the room back towards the phone. I fought my way across the small tundra and stood the couch upright just in front of the vent. I turned it so that I could squeeze between the space of the wall and the cushions, hopeful that the couch would hold up against the onslaught. I was scrambling to position myself correctly when I saw the black hand that grabbed Haley reach underneath the door. You knew. The voice seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere at the same time. The hand pulled on the door, and more of its distorted shape came into view. The entirety of it was a sickening shade of black and purple, with bits of red flesh loosely hanging from all over its body. You knew! I'm sorry! Please, don't come any closer! Please, I'm sorry! Fuck! What is this? I didn't know what I was apologizing for. I watched as it continued to crawl towards me, its breathing a heavy rasp in the air. You knew! The words rode on an unforeseen force this time, and I found myself and the couch tumbling backwards against the wall. The couch landed on me with a loud thud, taking my breath. I felt my head snap against the wood with a sickening crack. The snow and ice came raining down next. I felt the couch become heavier and heavier. 
I tried to scream or call for help, but all I managed were a few pathetic wheezes. Jason? Nurse, I think he's waking up. Easy, easy, bud. You're in the hospital. You're okay. We, we called your family, and they're driving up. My eyes adjusted to the bright light above my head. What happened? Mia and Chris, are they okay? Girls, it can't be real. Mia and Chris are fine, but... Uh, but but the, the girls... Scott didn't finish, but instead looked down to the floor. All the memories came back. The death and the cold were all I could see. I turned my head and buried it deep into my pillow. Scott sat silently while I screamed and wept. After a while, he spoke up. I... I don't know how to say this, Jason, but they... Uh, they took your leg. And they had to... It took them hours to dig you out of that damned basement. It was smart what you did with that couch, but uh, you didn't quite get your whole body under it. Frostbite got the rest. You've been out for a few days now. I stared at him, shaking with fear and disbelief. I reached for the cheap hospital linens that covered my lower half, but I couldn't force myself to pull them up. What he said couldn't be true. I released the blankets and let myself lay back down. The two of us sat in silence for a long time while I tried to dismiss the pain that radiated from just below my left knee. Scott wanted to speak, but I could see him struggling under the burden of his words. They... they found Haley's body. You knew about the girls, but Tommy is dead too. He got the worst of it. At least that's what the detectives told us. They'll want to talk to you soon. They think whoever did this followed the students to Lawrence from the brick pit. I struggled to process what Scott was telling me. Tommy? I thought he had made it home. He dropped the girls off. What about Kayla? Is she okay? Scott's face dropped again. Poor girl. Froze to death. From what the investigators gathered, she fell asleep not long after she got in her car. Too much to drink. The blizzard rolled in and buried her. She did get a window down and tried to dig her way out, but the cold got to her before she could. Frostbite ate her up. I can't think of a worse way to go. I could see the tears welling up in Scott's eyes. I called dispatch. I told them Kayla was still in the parking lot, and they said they were going to send an officer over. They assured me. You I, can't blame yourself for this, Jason. I told them. Why didn't they check on her? They did. Then how did this happen? She should be okay. Scott took a deep breath before answering. <sighs> Kayla didn't drive a blue Malibu. Sarah did. You got them mixed up. When the officer checked Lawrence, there wasn't one in the parking lot, so he figured she had already left. Like I said, you can't blame yourself, Jason. You tried. My mind began reeling. You knew! The words echoed in my head with a loud hum I couldn't shake. I remembered the moving drifts and the sobs from the pager. Sarah in the whiskey bottle, 
Haley in the cold. It all made sense. It was Kayla. Weird thing is, though, her body went missing from the morgue this morning. I think that's one of the things the detectives want to talk to you about. Oh, this has all been one trying ordeal. Poor kids. Oh, look, there's the nurse. I sat in my bed, trembling. How could I ever hope to live with myself? Four students were dead, and it was my fault. The guilt was unbearable. I looked out the window where a few gray clouds hung in the evening sky, and snow was starting to fall. Nurse, won't you get him a couple more blankets? We're supposed to get another snowstorm tonight, and I hear this one will be worse than the last. Wouldn't you like another blanket, Jason? Before I could answer Scott, I spotted a mangled black hand sitting atop a drift just outside my window. The hand gave me a small wave and then slithered back into the snow. No, I think the cold is just what I need. From time immemorial, humans have longed to fly, to join the birds as they soar across the sky, aloft on the wind. Could anything be more beautiful or freeing for the soul? Well, in this tale, shared with us by author Scott Savino, we'll meet one woman whose community has a close connection with birds, but there's nothing beautiful or freeing about them. Performing this tale are Wafia White, and Nicole Goodnight. So don't listen to the children. You'll be misled once you realize the Crow Kids will teach you how to fly. The first time I saw one, I was seven. That was the night the neighbor girl Cindy died. We were friends. It was summertime and hot, and the marsh was foggy, and the frogs were all going at once, making an awful racket with their obnoxious noises. I saw her go. She was holding his hand as he led her. Well past midnight from my window, I watched the little boy, the crow boy, lead her away and down the sloping path through the cypress knees, back into the sunken trees at the edge of our property. There were three crows circling them overhead. I knew she was gone before anyone told me she was. They told me my friend was dead the next day, but I didn't tell anyone about the crow kids. I don't even know if that's what they're called, if they're called anything at all. The next time I saw one of them, I was 17. She was leading Jeremy from up the road. That was summertime, too. I knew it was Jeremy because he was in some of my classes. 
I knew it was him because of his size. He was tall and big for 17. He wore a pair of swimming trunks. He wasn't old enough yet, but he liked to have a few drinks and swim on the warm Florida nights. His daddy didn't pay him no trouble about it on the account of football and him having good grades. They must have met him in the pool, the girl in her crows. His hair was slick and wet, but not just from the pool water. While they walked, Jeremy swiped blood away from his eyes several times. He and she and the crows made their procession through our backyard to the marsh. The crow perched on his left shoulder. It occasionally pecked at him below the eye, pecking at the blood. Jeremy didn't seem to mind. It skittered between them, hopping down his arm to peck at the inky black of the girl's wet hair and then back up to his shoulder. Two other crows were with them. The one that led would take flight for five or seven feet, land in the grass, and look back at them to be sure that they were keeping time. The third flew in slow figure eights behind. They liked that path because it was well-worn. When the moon was full, that part of the marsh would be bright while the rest of the world was dark. It seemed easier when leading new ones down. They were already confused and weary. If they could see the path, they seemed more at ease following the trail to the black waters and below to the mucky algae and sand at the bottom. The next summertime, they took Bobby Joe. She was 17. Then the next one they took was Elena. She was only five. Later, I realized it wasn't just the summertime. It was happening all the time. And it wasn't just kids they were taking out there to meet the gators and moccasins and the frogs. It was all kinds. My mama told me it takes all kinds to make a world. Same seems true for that sludgy world out there in the wetlands. From what I could tell, it's man and woman, young and old, black and white. And the kids. They send the kids and their escort of crows to come show you the way to go. Sometimes I stand at the edge of the marsh at the beginning of the fall. I don't listen to them. I never listen to them. And you shouldn't either if you see them. At the edge of the marsh, I can see some of them lying on their stomachs, faces in the mud. Some on their backs with their eyes full of the black staring at the stars. Some have been out there so long, out there so deep. It's just the tops of their dirty hair flittering heavily in the breeze or their toes if they're flying the other way. If you ever find yourself out here after dark, don't look them in their black eyes. Not the crows nor the children. Either can bewitch you if you do. Elena fell off her daddy's airboat. They never did find her. Bobby Joe got sad, stole some of her mama's ambient, and laid down in the tub. Jeremy died in that pool he loved so much, hit his head on the bottom, diving drunk. And I was seven and probably shouldn't have, but I saw the story on the news. Cindy's mama held her underwater in their kitchen sink, probably kicking and screaming until the water filled her lungs, until she stopped breathing air. Sometimes they say things, 
when no one's around, these souls in the bog. A quiet, croaking, awful sound mixed right with the frogs. It's a chorus of whispers and calls and moans, these voices of the crows. If you get too close to the water at night, you'll hear them softly as the pitch and volume grows. If you're extra unlucky, they'll come and whisper their hellos in person from their own beaks. Don't listen to what they say. Such awful things they speak. Take a dip or take a dive. And the waters here is just fine. Sink with us forever and we'll teach you how to fly. Don't you want to be a crow? You'll never know if you don't try. Come soar with us through the clouds of the muck beneath our black and murky sky. I used to ignore them. Even calling from my own backyard my whole life, I ignored them. I never knew what any of it meant to now. They don't reveal themselves to everyone, these spirits of the drown. Soaking in this tub, with this depression devouring what's left of me like a dark storm cloud. I understand. The little girl and her squawking friends are here in my bathroom to hold my hand. I can sink. It's a way out of this life. A way out of this town. I can fly my way out, but to go up, I have to start by going down. As I submerge my shoulders, I feel a tickle in my throat. There's something in my mouth. I pull it out. A long black feather. I consider it a moment. Then I return it to where it was found, and I swallow it whole. I don't know if it's what I want or if it's what they do. This little girl with her beady eyes and her friends. It doesn't matter. You'll fly upside down. I know that voice. I was seven then, but even after all these years, I could never forget Cindy. I didn't recognize her after so long. She's wet and rotten and stinks like stagnant swamps. I feel the pressure of a push as she takes a page from my mother's book. I feel the water fill my lungs and it burns, but with relief as she places a delicate yet slimy palm upon my face and I sink to fly beneath. To lose your parents to illness or accident is traumatizing enough. But what if your parents simply go missing one day, never to return? That's what we realize happened in this tale, shared with us by author Ash Killian. And when a young woman is sent to live with her uncle after her parents go missing, she soon discovers secrets best left buried. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin and Jesse Cornett. So hold tight to those who will protect you. Never let go of those sweaty bones.
sweat from my armpit plops onto my ribcage and trickles down my side. It makes me flinch and then freeze. He knows this house so well that even the slightest noise may give me away. My mom's bones twitch in my hand. Her hip bone connected to her thigh bone. Hip bone connected to the thigh bone. Remember that song from grade school? Her bones jerk back and forth like an axe just itching to take a swing. The screws in her femur, from her skiing accident in Aspen, glisten in the dim basement light. Blood is drawing into her porous bones. Sweat sneaks from my hairline and streams down my temples. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mom. The trickling of sweat down my body has been a part of the most memorable moments of my life. When I finally got past the ball in fifth grade soccer and took it down the field to score my first and only goal, the adrenaline pushing beads of sweat from my body as I put some air behind the ball as it swooshed past the goalie's outstretched fingertips. My parents were jumping up and down on the sidelines, clapping their hands and chanting my name as the cold fall air turned their breath into small clouds. Beads of sweat on the back of my neck were there when I kicked Josh Archer in the balls and then slapped his face for pinching my ass and pushing me into my locker freshman year. That was my first and only fight. Well, until now. The sweat had dissipated and turned to fear as I watched my parents go into Principal Ford's office. I shook and waited, and my heart surged all over the place as I anticipated the verdict. When they walked out of the principal's office, my dad gave me a wink, and my mom slipped me a smile. The school punished me with three days' suspension. My parents rewarded me with a quick trip to Orlando, Florida. We sat on the beach and talked about how protecting my body and self was the best move. They told me that others won't always see it that way. My body, my rules. They said that to me over and over as the hot and humid air beat down on us. The sweat on my body mixed with the coconut-scented sunblock and specks of sand from the beach. My mom's hip and femur bones jiggle in my hand. I try to shake them loose, but they won't leave my palm. Bex! 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 Where are you? I can hear my Uncle Rick calling my name. His voice sounds so far away. He's upstairs looking for me, probably checking all the closets and looking under my bed. My uncle is the only one to call me Bex. I prefer Becky, or my full name, Rebecca. He's called me Bex since the first day I came to live with him two years ago, after my parents disappeared. Social services drove me all the way out here, and I remember watching civilization slowly disappear the closer we got to my uncle's place on the upper peninsula of Michigan. The reception bars on my cell phone depleted down to nothing as we pulled into his dirt driveway. The dilapidated farmhouse with white weathered paint seemed monstrous to me when I first showed up. But over the last two years, with just me and my uncle here... The house in the middle of nowhere feels tiny. Bex! I know you're here! By the sound of his voice, he's still upstairs tearing through all the bedrooms. I know he's moving slow. My palms are slick with sweat. 
but my mom's bones stay perfectly connected to me. I can't shake them loose. I'm freezing and I can see my breath. Damn it, Bex! I can just picture the big protruding purple vein in his neck as he yells. I've seen it before. I hate that he calls me Bex. I've always hated it. He didn't earn the right to come up with a nickname for me. He never visited us. I had only met him once before when I was eight, when we came out here for a week during the summer. When Uncle Rick and my parents were sitting around and talking, I would go and play Anne of Green Gables by myself as I ran through the green hills with my wild red hair and pretended that I was an orphan girl with a heart of gold. Bex with the flex, he said to me as social services dropped me off at his doorstep. I didn't have to pretend then. I really did feel like an orphan. What flex? I asked him. Those things on your face, he said as he pointed to my freckles. Hip bone is connected to the thigh bone. I gently sang to myself and then clasped my free hand over my mouth. It just slipped out. Automatic. I listened for his roar and footsteps, but there is nothing but silence from upstairs. Why is he so still? Did he hear me? The cold air in the basement has dried the sweat to my skin. It's a salty itch. I am shivering, but my mom's bones keep me in my safe place. A far corner that I'm hiding in. I run my hand over my mom's femur. It feels dry except for the blood that is now congealing to it and globbing over the screws. Two years ago, around this time of year, I remember helping my mom off the couch. Since the skiing accident and the surgery, when winter would hit, her leg would get stiff. Her brother, my Uncle Rick, had asked them to come up and help him with some things around the house. They left me behind. They knew better than to drag me away from my warm and messy room where I was spending my winter break binging Netflix. The police found their car smashed into a dead oak tree near the bank of the Ripple River. The airbags deployed. Windows shattered. And the car doors wide open, inviting the fluffy white snow in to accumulate on the seats. But no bodies. I remember staring at that picture for hours and hours, trying to understand, pressing my thumb so hard into the picture it wrinkled as I concentrated on every detail. The detective had given me the photo to see if I saw anything that would help. I saw nothing but the absence of my parents and felt that cold, memorable sweat. They dredged the river as much as they could. They never found their bodies. They never found them. But today I did. My uncle is clamoring down the stairs. I can hear the keys on his belt loop rattle with every heavy footstep as the floorboards creak above me. My mom's bones start pulling me towards the middle of the basement. The strain on my arm is strong. I fight with her and retreat to my corner. This is the only safe place that I have right now. Bex, with the flex, I'm going to break your neck. He laughs a deep smoker cackle of mucus and damp black tobacco at his morbid rhyme. I think he's in the living room now. I freeze as I hear his winter boots scraping above me. His heavy boots instead of keys move with him. I hear him pull out the kitchen table chair and then sit down. 
His weight makes the boards above me groan. I hated sitting at that kitchen table with him. Most nights I would have to go outside and walk around the back of the house to yell that dinner was ready. My stomach would clench at the thought of going near that shed, so I stood outside and yelled. The flies in the summertime would swarm the place, and in the winter the light would shine through the wood slats, like a horrible beacon in the dark. He would quickly open the shed door and then lock it behind him before he came inside for dinner. The creases of his knuckles would be lined with dried blood, and he smelled like sour flesh. He wouldn't even wash his hands before eating. I had to force myself not to look at him as I ate because I would lose my appetite. I just couldn't comprehend how this grimy man with dark eyes was related to my mom. A few times I tried to gracefully approach the subject of turning my cell phone service back on. I needed something to connect me with the world. My life consisted of long bus rides to a small school and then back to his old farmhouse with him. Each time he would yell, I ain't paying for no damn phone. His food would fly out of his mouth along with the words. I know now that he wasn't always processing deer in that shed. I hear another sound above me. A loud object hits the floor. There's only one way out of here, Bex. And I'm sitting right by it. I'm a patient man. I can wait. I know you didn't go outside. There ain't no footprints in the snow. I'm trying to stop shaking. He's right. He boards the windows up for the winter, and the only way out is the front door, which he has a direct shot of sitting in his kitchen chair. What was that loud thunk noise? My brain clicks. It's his shotgun. Adrenaline takes over my whole body, and every inch of me is shaking, and the cold down here makes it worse. My mom's bones surge and force me to steady myself. I grab onto her femur and hip bone with both hands now. I don't want to keep holding her bones. The absence of her flesh, of her entire being, makes me sick. But they won't leave my hand and they are the only things keeping me okay right now. The sweat comes back. A drop slinks from my scalp and stops at my eyebrow. My eye twitches. Sweat is what brought me down here to the basement to begin with. The old furnace was blasting uncontrollable heat, making the house feel like a sauna on the verge of exploding. I woke up this morning covered in sweat and stuck to my sheets. I laid there for a few minutes, hoping it would pass like my morning sweats normally do. But this time, it wasn't me waking from another nightmare of my parents missing. But the air around me. The house sweltered. I stared at the ceiling, wondering what the hell I was going to do all day trapped here during my winter break. No phone. No Netflix to binge. Nobody to talk to. Hot as hell. I pulled back my curtains and stared out at the blistering snow blowing everywhere. I grabbed Anne of Green Gables from my bookshelf and decided to read that for the fourteenth time. But I couldn't focus on anything but my sweat and the heat. I could hear the furnace grumbling down in the basement. I stepped outside of my room and called Uncle Rick's name but got no answer. It isn't unusual for him to leave and not come home for hours. I went downstairs and saw that the door to the basement was open and unlocked, which was weird. 
My uncle may be a gross and unkempt man, but the one thing he does keep up on is locking doors. Ah, it's the sharp tools I use for my deer processing business in that shed and basement. Wouldn't want no accidents. Now would we, Bex? That's what he said to me on my first day at this place as he held the padlock in his hand. Curiosity of a forbidden room and an absent uncle made me grab the basement doorknob and pull it all the way open. The open padlock clanked. I flicked on the light at the top of the stairs and the steps squeaked below my bare feet as I made my way down. I called his name again, but there was no answer. I pulled the light string and it unveiled a basement filled with piles of cardboard boxes, metal filing cabinets, and a giant noisy furnace off in the corner. There were no tools, no rows of sharp knives and hooks everywhere. Just an old and forgotten basement where junk goes to die. I walked over to the furnace and the heat from it blasted my face, then abruptly stopped and became silent. Knowing nothing about furnaces and figuring the problem solved itself, I turned around to go back upstairs. Faded black handwriting on one of the boxes caught my eye. I recognized my mother's handwriting right away. Rebecca Baby Stuff. I forgot about being in the forbidden basement and the temperature was starting to become more comfortable down there compared to the rest of the house. I opened up the boxes and went through my childhood. Family pictures of the three of us taken at the Sears studio. Baby clothes that I don't remember ever wearing, but they still smelled like home. It was just what I needed. I needed my mom and dad, and this was the closest that I could get to them. Or so I thought. The kitchen table chair above me scrapes against the floor again as my Uncle Rick moves around, his keys jingling. You are a feisty and nosy shit, just like your mom. My mom's bones start to shake in my hand. I'm quietly moving my body in place to stay warm. I rub my left thumb against my mom's engagement ring that I'm wearing on my middle finger. I found it in one of the boxes here. I remember the white jewelry box and how it was always on her dresser. She would let me play dress up and put on her earrings and rings. I smile and then cry thinking of mom as I hold her bones. The scrape of the shotgun on the floor above me makes me suck in my breath. Bex, I know you can hear me. Don't play stupid with me, girly. Come out, come out! My mom's bones shake harder in my hand. I can feel that magnetic vibration from them pulling me out of the corner again. That pull had ended up saving my life earlier, but I'm not sure they're going to save me again. As I was in the basement going through my forgotten boxes with my mom's ring on my hand, I had noticed a rope handle on the floor. I pushed aside all the boxes and realized that the handle was to a giant trap door in the floor. My gut told me to run when I saw it, but I heaved it open to find six skeletons. I screamed at their bones and turned to run upstairs but fell into the pile of boxes. As I was shaking, my mouth dry, my muscles turning to cement from the fall, a flicker of gold caught my eye on one of the skeletons. I stood up and walked over to the six skeletons laid out on the ground. Their bones were loosely placed and not connected. 
the joints just within reach of the right sockets. The gold necklace around the first skeleton on the right rang my brain. I knelt down with a shaking hand and touched the oval medallion on the gold necklace, turning it over. I stared at a picture of me and my mom when I was five, in a pink dress and a sorry excuse for a ponytail because I had very little hair. I looked at her skeleton and saw the screws that were in her right femur. I knew it was her. Bubbles of my saliva flew from my mouth as I unraveled and cried over my mother's bones. The skeleton next to her was slightly taller and had a silver watch on its left wrist. That was Dad. I touched his bony arm. The arm that I had always reached out to for help crossing the street. The arm that steadied me when I was spinning. Now bare. Tears streamed so hard that my throat started to close. I sat on the floor with my parents for... I'm not sure how long. I looked over at the other four skeletons next to them laid out on a single row. A skeleton of a woman with turquoise earrings placed near her skull. A once flesh-covered man with an enormous belt with a silver buckle hanging loosely around his hip bones. Another set of bones with a Michigan State beanie pulled over its skull. And the last one had bright red high heels on its bony feet. All of them. My parents included, staring back at me with their jaws open. The shock of finding my parents mushed my brain, and I didn't comprehend that the person who did this to them, to all of those people, was my Uncle Rick, until I heard him slam the front door. My body burst into a thousand pins and needles. I clumsily tried to shut the trap door, but my hands were shaking so bad that when I tried to flip the door back over, it slipped and swung back open, hitting the ground with a loud thud. Uncle Rick descended the stairs. He stopped at the base of the stairwell and glared at the skeletons and me. He said nothing, just stood there opening and closing his giant fists. You're a murdering monster. He walked towards me with a disturbing calmness, and I looked around for something to hit him with. The only thing within reach was my mom's femur bone. As I reached down to pick it up, It slipped itself into the hip socket with a dry pop. I had no time to react to its movement and picked up her bones. His walk changed to charge at me. I swung her bones like an axe into his head. The soft flesh near his temple gave way to my mom, and thick blood started pouring out of the side of his face. You'll die for this! His thick hands grabbed my neck. My hands were firmly on my mom's bones and I tried to take them back out of his skull, but they were stuck in Uncle Rick. And with every yank, he screamed while digging his dirty fingernails into my neck. I pulled again and they popped back out. I swung my mom at his knee with a loud thwack. My uncle fell to the ground. He held his knee as blood from his face dripped to the floor. I ran up the basement stairs and when I got to the top... I realized that my mom's bones were still in my hands. My uncle's blood was all over her. I opened my right hand to drop them, but they wouldn't leave. I shook my hand and they stayed connected to me. The thought of breaking my mom up and having a part of her stuck to me while the rest of her laid downstairs made my stomach turn. 
My mind kept flopping between my uncle being a serial killer and my mom's bones not leaving my hand. I heard my uncle in the basement, muttering and moving around. I went to go out the front door, but my mom pulled me upstairs towards my bedroom. My feet were hitting the wooden steps so hard that they stung. When I got to the top of the stairs, my mom's bones started pulling me up and then my feet were no longer touching the ground. My shoulders strained as the bones pulled me higher into the air. My fingers were shaking around her bones as they guided me back down the stairs, never touching the ground. The steps just a few inches below my feet as I wrapped my left hand around her bones, like I was holding an umbrella. I floated down the stairs soundlessly. I smiled at the absurdity for a moment. I felt like Mary Poppins, my favorite movie as a kid. When my feet touched the landing, her bones pulled me around the corner to the living room and held me against the wall with my arms spread. I was pinned. I tried to move as I could hear my uncle limping up the basement stairs and cursing. He was slow moving. I held my breath as he went upstairs, the sound of his jingling keys growing distant. He had heard me stomping upstairs when I first ran from him, and there he went after me. Mom's bones eased their hold on me when he reached upstairs. They pulled me up again, around the corner, and I floated down the basement stairs. When I got to the bottom of the stairs, and my bare feet hit the cold concrete ground, I stood there and looked at all the skeletons again. My body cramped with sadness. Mom then pulled me to the far corner of the basement, behind a stack of rusty metal filing cabinets. This is where I have remained. I feel a thick drop of liquid hit my face. It's not my sweat. I take my free hand and wipe away a smattering of blood. My uncle's bleeding face is now dripping onto the kitchen floor and through the cracks to me. Bex. Bex with the flex. You know a lot of work went into what you saw in the basement. A lot of waiting, too. Your damn parents got a little too nosy the last time. They were here, too. It must run in the family. The strong winter winds shift the house. He'll be down here to look for me soon. This is the last place he hasn't checked. I have nowhere to go. No neighbors within miles. With feet of snow outside and Uncle Rick's car keys jingling on his belt, I'm trapped as he guards the front door. I'll die if I run outside. I'm going to die if I stay here. I'm Dead or dead? And maybe that's why my mom brought me back down here? For a quicker death by Uncle Rick than freezing to death outside? Maybe it's to be with her and Dad? We can finally be back together again. I look at her bones in my hand and know that they're no match for Uncle Rick and his shotgun. The blow to his head wasn't enough to knock him out. And judging by the remains in his basement... This isn't the first rodeo with fighting to kill someone. I take a deep breath as I prepare to die. The fear and shock have already drained so much life out of me. 
Mom's bones jiggle and drag me out of my hiding spot. I let them. I don't fight it anymore. Her bones bring me to the trap door and down to the ground where she is. And then they leave my hand and connect back with the rest of her bones. With a dry pop. I'll see you guys soon. My body, my rules, I guess. The basement fills with crackling and popping noises. And all six skeletons start joining back together. Dust and dirt fill the air and they rise from the ground. I start backing away as my mom stands up and her gold necklace clanks up against her sternum. My dad's wristwatch slides down to his skeletal fingers and he catches it before it falls. The turquoise earrings on the other skeleton clink to her skull. The Michigan State beanie slinks down over the other skeleton's eye sockets and he reaches up to push it back. The man with the massive belt holds it up with a long bony arm while the woman next to him finds her bearings in her tall red heels. They stand still for a few seconds and then move towards me. (coughs) Uncle Rick thuds above me and comes down the basement stairs. The skeletons stop when he enters the room and form a barrier between me and him. His face is bewildered and bleeding. What the hell? The skeletons surround him and start pulling him in every direction. They gouge his eyes with their bony fingers. I slip past them and run upstairs to the front door. I can barely see my uncle's green Ford Explorer through the blowing snow. His keys are on his belt loop. I have to go back downstairs. My nerves race all over my body as I go down the stairs. No floating with mom's bones this time. Just slow, squeaky steps down the stairs to the basement. I can see what was left of Uncle Rick through the ribcage of the woman in the red heels. His face a twisted mesh of flesh as he's choking on his blood. His body is full of dark holes spurting blood like a geyser. My dad turns and holds up his hand. The skeletons all stop. I go to my mom and dad. They touch my face with their sweaty and bony fingertips. And I sob. I hold their bones in my hands. I love you. I miss you. Their jaws slacken. They nod their heads at me and take me into them. Their bones radiate that lost warmth of their presence over the last two years, and they hug me tight and long. Drops of sweat and tears run all over me. They place their jawbones on my head as if to kiss me, and then they release me. I smell and feel the sweat from their bones. That familiar smell from my dad after he had been out working in the garage on a Saturday... The smell of my mom after her night runs, training for marathons. Dad bends over and unhooks the keys from Uncle Rick's belt and extends his arm to hand them to me. He points up the stairs. I look down at Uncle Rick, gasping. I spit in his face and kick him in the stomach. His warm blood squirts all over my naked foot. I take one last look at my skeletal parents. The bones in the Michigan State beanie. The remains of the woman with the turquoise earrings. The bony frame of the man with the large belt. And the frail structure of the woman in the red heels. I'm sorry he happened to you. I know you won't let him get away with what he did. 
They all nod their skulls at me and their bones rattle. I'll let the authorities know so your families can have closure. Mom? Dad? I'll come back for you. I clench Uncle Rick's keys in my hand, head upstairs, grab a coat and boots, and head outside. I get into the green explore and touch my face. I can still feel their sweat on me. I close my eyes and turn the key in the ignition. Click, click, click. And my heart clicks with it. And then the car starts. And I drive into the cold with their sweat upon my face. In our final tale, we meet three men, friends since childhood. They're gathering at a lake house owned by one of the men's late parents. They share fond memories despite the sadness of loss. But in this tale, shared with us by author Shelby Tapp, when an old phone is found in the lake, a mystery begins as to who owns it and why it seems to turn on on its own. Performing this tale, are Atticus Jackson, Jeff Clement, and Graham Rowett. So try not to succumb to madness. Use common sense and logic when confronted by the call from the bottom feeders. On the surface... A lake is the ultimate summer recreation spot. Swimming, fishing, boating. Fun for the whole family. But below the surface, a lake is something else entirely. As you sink deeper, the water turns cold. Danger waits in the murky silence of alligators, a brain-eating amoeba, or giant catfish. But there are other perils waiting for you in the muddy depths. Perils no one warns you about. Predators that perhaps don't leave any survivors to warn you. Consider this your warning. It was the first day of July. I remember because it was the first time we'd gotten to hang out together in over a year. That was the year Owen got married. Charlie got deployed, and I had my first kid. Life had stolen us from each other without us realizing. But that day, we were back. Just the three of us. A cooler full of beer, Lake Texoma, and a long holiday weekend. We'd spent summers at Owen's parents' lake house damn near our entire lives. But after his folks died there and he got himself a wife and a mortgage, it sat empty. On the inside, the house had a sad, abandoned feel. Cobwebs, musty air, thick dust. But outside was like stepping back in time. The towering trees, the smell of water, the sound of boats buzzing by. It was all exactly as when we were kids. 
It was though we'd found a little square space where time stood still. Just for us. I'd started drinking before noon and had a good buzz going. Owen and I did backflips off the dock while Charlie, a diver for the Navy, skimmed the lake bottom. He got excited every time he resurfaced with a proclaimed treasure. Owen and I stopped paying attention after he whooped and hollered over what turned out to be a beer can for the third time. It's probably the same damn can over and over. Charlie raised his muddy middle finger at us. Mid-flip, I heard Charlie yell my name right before I hit the water. When I re-emerged, he was breathlessly trying to convince Owen he'd legitimately found something. We swam over to him. Charlie dunked the object underwater to wash away the mud. I think it's a phone. Owen and I treaded water next to him, taking turns examining the muddy smartphone. I flipped the phone a few times in my hand. No way it's been here for long. It's too new looking. Look at the screen size. We could try sticking it in a bag of rice to dry it out. Maybe it'll turn on and we can get it back to its owner. We swam back to the dock. The sun sank behind the tree line, cooling the air around us. Goosebumps sprouted across my arms despite the unbearable heat just an hour earlier. Owen crouched on the edge of the dock between Charlie and me. He sat, letting his feet dangle into the water next to mine. I stared into the brown abyss beyond our toes. Remember those man-eating catfish stories my dad would tell to scare the hell out of us? The killer catfish? My shoulders tensed at the mention of Owen's dead parents. I pulled my feet from the water. Yeah, I remember it scared the hell out of you. Charlie elbowed Owen in the ribs. Their laughter echoed out over the water, slicing through the quiet air. The comforting sound of recreation seemed to fade with the setting sun. Across the water, a neighbor's vacant rope swing swayed in the growing breeze. A loud smack cracked across the lake's surface, and all three of us jumped. Killer catfish still scares the hell out of you. I watched the fish's splash ripple across the water. Shut up, Charlie. Owen's already sunburned face glowed an even deeper red. He picked up the muddy cell phone sitting next to Charlie. I wonder if it'll turn on. I think I've seen a charger that'll fit this in a junk drawer somewhere in the house. Darkness crept across the lake, shrouding the far bank in shadow. The rope swing swayed faster, wider, as though carrying an invisible body. I swallowed the unease that rose in the back of my throat. Think you got a zip bag and some rice in the house? Yeah. It's getting cold and creepy out here anyway. Charlie stood first, steadying himself on the pier's decrepit post before heaving Owen and I to our feet. We followed him to the house. Crossing the kitchen threshold from outside was like walking into a wall of cold, mildew-laced air. My bare feet caught on the peeling linoleum. Owen rummaged through the rickety kitchen cabinets, staring into the packed shelves. I heard the sadness leak into his voice. I know Mom and Dad have rice, and... I mean, they used to. They always kept this place stocked. It's still weird, talking about them in the past tense. Being here without them is... surreal. I'll help you look. 
Charlie clasped a hand on Owen's shoulder, and they eventually found a bag of rice and a box of plastic zip bags. Charlie buried the phone in the rice, zipped the bag closed, and chunked it onto the kitchen table. I don't know about you guys, but I'm starving. Who's cooking tonight? Uh, not you. You keep pulling beer cans out of the grill instead of burgers. Owen, you do it. Charlie shot me the finger. I hoped that Owen taking control of dinner would help him feel more at home and in charge of the place. Less like a kid staying in his parents' house on the lake they died in. Charlie and I looked around the grill, reminiscing about bad dates and fishtails while Owen flipped burgers. It wasn't until I was having to yell over the wind that I realized a storm was building. Thick clouds devoured the night sky, veiling the stars. Chilly air hurtled across the lake surface. Trees that earlier seemed inviting and warm turned cold, ominous. I squinted out over the water, black except for the caps of white that started to form. I blinked hard, trying to dispel the dark masses I saw hovering over the lake. I knew they were an optical illusion, but I was relieved when no one suggested we eat inside. It could have been my imagination, but Charlie seemed relieved too. After dinner, we split into different rooms to check in at home. When we first arrived at the lake, we agreed to stay off our phones and keep them on silent. While my wife was fine with this arrangement, she was more than a little concerned about the lake itself. The circumstances of Owen's parents' deaths were too weird, she said. I promised her for the tenth time I wouldn't swim after dark. When I got back to the kitchen, Owen was staring out the window at the churning black water. You alright, man? I grabbed two beers from the fridge and handed him one. Yeah, it's just... weird. He gestured toward the lake. Did I ever tell you what happened to my parents? I mean, what the cops think happened. I shook my head no before taking a deliberately long drink. I didn't know what to say. I knew his parents were found in the lake, but I'd never pressed him about the details. Owen paused when Charlie appeared from around the corner. The wind raged against the house, eliciting a series of loud cracks and pops from its walls in protest. I tried not to look nervous, but the hairs on my arms stood up. I turned my attention back to Owen, hoping he'd keep talking and distract me. I willed my eyes to stay on Owen, and not dart to the tumult outside the window. We know they must have gone into the lake after midnight, because my mom was playing an online game with my sister until then. None of the neighbors saw or heard anything, probably because a storm came through late that night. My parents would never go into the water without the boat, especially not in a storm. In my entire life, I'd only seen them swim twice, and that was at the ocean, never at the lake. Mom hated the lake water. She loved looking at it from afar, but she hated being near it. Hated the smell. I remember that. That's why they had the outdoor shower installed. She'd make us wash the lake water off before we were allowed back in the house. That's what bothers me most. What could possibly make her go out into the water? Did my dad go first, and she was trying to save him? Did someone force them? 
Owen drained his beer and crushed the can between his palms. He walked over to the liquor cabinet and pulled out a bottle of whiskey. Any takers? Charlie and I both said yes, but we glanced at each other for reassurance when Owen turned his back. I guess between Owen's unnerving story and the storm, neither Charlie nor I were keen on getting wasted. The cops asked us if Dad was a sleepwalker, which he wasn't. At least not when I was grown up. But how would we have known if he'd started sleepwalking after we moved out? You know how my mom was. She'd never tell us anything if she thought we'd worry. We wouldn't have had any way of knowing. The ice cubes in our glasses popped and hissed when he poured the brown liquor over them. Is that what the cops think happened? That your dad fell into the lake while sleepwalking and your mom went in after him? Owen stared out at the waves. The winds howled outside. After a long pause, Owen shrugged. Officially, the police said mom and dad drowned, and they didn't suspect foul play. My sister thinks they were implying our parents committed suicide. The detective uh, told us that not every incident gets a cut and dry, neat ending. That's bullshit. He didn't know my parents. Let's have a round for them. For mom and dad. He tilted his head back and dumped the whiskey into his mouth. He shook his head sharply to one side and exhaled the burn. Then we heard it. A faint chime. A ubiquitous sound I'd heard from people's pockets, purses, and hands for years. It was unmistakably a cell phone notification. And it came from the kitchen table. I wondered if Charlie had seen me jump. Owen was frozen over the whiskey bottle. I willed my face to replace its shocked expression with a cool indifference. Charlie looked towards the rice-filled bag on the table with his trademark amused curiosity. Did you guys hear that? I swallowed my shock and Owen unfroze. Neither of us wanted to be dubbed a chicken for the rest of the weekend. Was that... It couldn't have been the phone. Owen's eyes volleyed back and forth between Charlie's face and mine. There's no way, right? Charlie set his glass on the counter and moved slowly towards the table with Owen and me on his heels. Holy shit, the screen is lit up. He grabbed the bag and held it out for Owen and me. The light was too dim beneath the mud caked on its screen. I couldn't make out what was on the display. We should clean it off. Yeah, and plug it in. Owen, do you know where you saw the charger that might work? No. Where can we start looking? Owen shook his head. I mean, no, I don't want to plug it in. Charlie and I stared at him, confused. It shouldn't be on. It can't be. I tried earlier to turn it on and it wouldn't. It was dead. You're not scared, are you? I narrowed my eyes at Charlie and shook my head. Now wasn't the time to tease Owen. It's just a phone, man. Yeah, it's kind of weird that it turned on after being underwater, but electronics do weird things sometimes. This phone could have been dropped in the lake right before we got here. Owen took a long step backwards, bumping into the liquor cabinet. Its glass contents rattled and clanged, cutting through our bewildered silence. (laughs) I snatched the bag from Charlie's hands and opened it. The old-timey ringtone filled the room. I wiped the screen on my pants and held it up to my face just in time for the ringing to stop. One missed call and a text message. 
That's what's on the screen. It doesn't give me a preview of the message, so we'd have to open it to know. Just a phone, Owen. That's all it is, see? Owen's body relaxed away from the cabinet, but he didn't come any closer. We should see what the message says. What? No, man, that's weird. That's an invasion of privacy. I don't mean go through the whole phone. Just read the message. What if it's the owner texting to see if someone's found it? Charlie held out his hand for the phone. I rolled my eyes and dropped it in his palm. I turned to Owen and shook my empty glass, jingling the ice cubes. Can I get a refill so we can have that drink for your parents? He forced a weak smile, apparently relieved I wasn't going to make fun of him. Owen had always been a little more sensitive than Charlie and me, a little easier to scare, but I respected that about him. I couldn't deride Owen, not during his first time back at the lake, especially not while he was still grieving. Besides, I had to admit that being back at the lake house had me a little creeped out and jumpy too. Huh. It's just a blank message. Says it's from unknown. Probably couldn't receive the text properly underwater. He shoved the phone back into the bag and zipped it closed, then pointed to the drink in my hand. You guys drinking without me now? After a little more whiskey and a lot more reminiscing, Owen finally relaxed. We played rock, paper, scissors to decide the shower order, like old times. Owen got first shower, then Charlie, which meant I got stuck with whatever was left in the water heater. When I got out, Charlie was laying on the couch flipping through TV channels. I heard Owen laugh quietly from the kitchen. (laughs) He was sitting at the dining table, the bag of rice open in front of him. Mud kicked phone in his hands. It looked like he was typing. What are you doing? It got another text message while you were in the shower. I've been talking to someone. His grin was a little too broad. Talking to who? I don't know, but she sounds cute. Who sounds cute? Charlie's face appeared in the doorway. How do you even know it's a she? I I don't know. I'm just guessing. The number isn't saved as a contact. (laughs) Charlie cocked an eyebrow at him. Convince yourself it's a girl on the line, and all of a sudden you're not freaked out. Classic. What are they saying? Do they know whose phone it is? I don't know. I haven't asked. She wants to know if I want to play. Owen bounced his eyebrows up and down. Charlie and I exchanged bewildered looks. Did you tell her that you'd have to ask your wife first? Owen held up his middle finger. Then she asked if I was alone. That's kind of weird. Owen read the message out loud. Do you like to swim? Come swim with us tonight. All three of us turned to the windows, currently getting pummeled by rain. Maybe there's some words not storming. I sat down at the table across from Owen. The phone dinged again, and Charlie moved behind him, leaning over his shoulder to watch. He cocked an eyebrow when Owen opened the message. Wait, what is this? Where are the messages? What do you mean? They're right there. Charlie threw me a confused look. What is it? There's nothing there? It's an empty text bubble from unknown. Shut up, dude. You're not funny. I'm looking right at them. Confusion and amusement fought for control of Charlie's face. 
wasn't used to Owen messing with him. It was always the other way around. Come on, guys. I leaned over to see the screen for myself. Owen held the phone up to my face. A text message was open from unknown. Where the message content should have been was an empty bubble. Was Owen really trying to mess with Charlie and me like this? Was I supposed to play along? I doubted that. I got hung on something in Owen's face. Something in the tension between his eyebrows. The phone chimed twice. I watched two more blank text bubbles appear on the screen. What the fuck? Charlie's eyes flicked to Owen's, whose face had lost all its color. What is it? Tension snapped around the kitchen like a downed power line. What the fuck is this? Is this some kind of sick joke? Color returned to Owen's face, flushing his neck and cheeks red with rage. He shoved himself away from the table and stood, sending his chair clattering to the floor behind him. Dude, calm down. What's wrong? It's just a blank message. What were you expecting? Just a blank message. Are you serious? Read this out loud. Owen jabbed his finger at the screen. I held up my hands towards him, palms out, gesturing for him to calm down. Owen, I don't see anything. It's a blank message from an unknown sender. Like Charlie said earlier, I probably just couldn't receive the message properly since it's been underwater. This isn't funny. You know what? Fuck you guys. He shoved the phone into my chest and the bag of rice into Charlie's. He tried to push past me, but Charlie grabbed his arm. We're not messing with you, I swear. Charlie stared directly into Owen's faltering glare. What do you see on the phone? Owen looked over his shoulder at me, and I nodded solemnly. He shook his head, jaw clenched tight, but eventually held out his hand. I set the phone in his open palm. He stared at the screen and exhaled hard through his nose. Apprehension palpable. He gulped audibly. One says, M and D say hi. And the next one says, they want you to come swim with them. M and D? As in Owen's mom and dad? Charlie and I locked eyes in disbelief. He grabbed the phone from Owen's hand. You're telling me that right here, where there's an empty text bubble, you see words. Owen shrugged. I watched defeat spread from his shoulders to his face. I'm not saying I don't believe you, I'm just... This is crazy, right? Charlie looked to me for backup. Lightning flashed outside the windows, flickering light through the room. The following crack of thunder made me and Owen both jump, even though we knew it was coming. Look... We've had a lot to drink. We're all tired. Let's just put this thing away, get some sleep, and figure it out tomorrow. We can just throw it back in the damn lake if you want, Owen. Good plan. He dropped the phone back into the bag of rice and zipped it closed right as it chimed once more. The three of us froze. I scanned Owen's face. Maybe we should just leave it. Turn it off until tomorrow. No... Give it to me. I want to see what it says. Charlie's grip on the bag tightened. His eyes shot to mine. 
My heart started to pound in my ears. I didn't want to spend this night worried my best friend had lost his mind. I wished we'd never found this phone. Owen reached out and took the bag from Charlie, who released it begrudgingly. I watched Owen's eyes scan the message, saw the color drain from his face again. What do you see? It... It says... Oh... Are you coming? His eyes slowly rose to meet ours. Guys... This is weird, right? The fear in his voice made me cringe. I leaned over the screen to look for myself, but saw the same empty spaces as before. From the same unknown sender. Charlie clasped Owen's shoulder and deftly slipped the phone from his hand. Let's get a round of waters in us and hit the sack. I'm beat. We can deal with this tomorrow, yeah? He returned the phone to the bag of rice while Owen looked on, limp. I filled three glasses with water and followed them to the living room, our favorite place to sleep when we visited as kids. Charlie put on a 90s B-comedy, and that icy feeling between us began to thaw. When Owen got up to use the bathroom, Charlie tiptoed to my chair and put his face near my ear. Is he on something? Not that I can tell. The unfamiliar line of concern across Charlie's forehead set my pulse alight. Maybe this is some kind of mental breakdown. That's what I was thinking, too. I don't think it's safe to sleep while he's like this. We could sleep in shifts so one of us can have eyes on him. What do you think? I was thinking the same thing. I felt guilty talking about Owen that way. My instincts told me we should call his wife or sister, but I couldn't bring myself to say it aloud. Honestly, I'm already falling asleep. Can you take the first shift? Yeah, I'll wake you in a few hours. He got back to his recliner just as the bathroom door creaked open, announcing Owen's return. I must have fallen asleep right after that, because the next thing I knew, Charlie was shaking my shoulder. Dude, dude, wake up! <sighs> I struggled to force my eyes open. My mind felt thick with the kind of sleep that only hours of drinking can get you. You've got to see this. He gestured for me to get up and follow him. Owen snored rhythmically on the couch. I crept into the kitchen where Charlie was standing next to the table, clutching the phone from the lake. What are you doing? I tried to rub the sleep from my face. Multiple flashes of lightning strode across the kitchen. I counted the seconds until the thunder like we did as kids, but only got to two. The phone got more messages, but this time they're actual words. Look. He thrust the phone at me. I blinked hard a few times, trying to adjust my eyes to the bright display. There on the screen were the exact same messages as earlier. Empty text bubbles from an unknown sender. I think this is the wrong thing. There's nothing there. He scrunched his brows together and craned his neck to see. No, it's right there. Don't you see it? He pointed to the empty text box. Now I know you're messing with me. Are you messing with Owen earlier? That's not cool, man. He was really worked up over this. But Charlie just looked confused. You really can't see that? I shook my head and handed him the phone. 
Was I dreaming? I fought the urge to slap myself to be sure. I swear, I'm not messing with you. I rolled my eyes, but decided to play along. Okay then. What do you see, supposedly? They're from an unsaved number, just like Owen said. But the messages are different. They say, come to the water. You won't believe what we found on the bottom. Come see. His eyes rose from the message slowly, like he was afraid to see my reaction. What? Like the treasure you were diving for earlier? <laughs> Fuck me. He ran his hands over his hair. I'd never seen desperation on Charlie before. He'd expected me to trust him. How am I supposed to believe you? I don't know, man. The rain had tapered to a drizzle, but the wind still barreled against the house. I heard the crashing waves battering the dock. This is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me, and I've seen some shit. His eyes darkened and guilt poured into my chest. You would never say something like that if you didn't mean it. Charlie rarely referenced the things he'd experienced on deployment. I believe you. The words poured from my mouth, though I wasn't sure I'd believed myself. If this is real, then I think we should turn the phone off. In the morning, we could take it to the police station or something. Get it closer to its owner and away from us. You don't really think it's dangerous, do you? I don't know what to think. But if you're asking me to believe that this phone is receiving messages that not all of us can see, then I'm way out of my depth. All of us are. And Owen is already struggling. He can't deal with this, too. Charlie nodded, staring at the floor. I could see his mind working. There's one small problem. It won't turn off. Impossible. It was at the bottom of a lake. It shouldn't even be on, much less stay on. It'll probably just die on its own in any minute. The power button doesn't work, and the phone won't let me access anything except the text messages. I can't open the calls, photos, browser, settings. None of it works. There's not even any other messages. Charlie and I stared at each other in impassive silence. I was numb. Hours in the sun, swimming and drinking, then worrying about Owen. Exhaustion pressed me into the floor. I steadied myself on the countertop. Light flashed through the kitchen, and trailing thunder rattled the dishes in the sink. I pulled out a chair from the table, but decided I was too restless to sit. I paced instead. Charlie stared at the phone in his hand. I watched his eyes move along the words I could not see. Outside, the waves battered the shore. Agree to keep it put away until tomorrow? I wasn't sure he'd heard me. His eyes danced the same line across the screen again and again. Agreed. I'm good to take a shift if you want to try and get some shut-eye. I fought the sleep that tugged at the corners of my eyes. Charlie clenched the phone at arm's length away from his body, as though it might escape or attack. Good plan. He dropped the phone into the bag of rice set it on the kitchen table, and shoved it against the wall. Wake me up if anything weird happens. We settled back into our spots in the living room. Owen snored into his pillow. My mind bounced wildly between the night's events, disbelief giving way to fear every time I tried to rationalize what had happened. I flipped through channels, irritated with how many horror movies were playing. I put on a rerun of a game show. Something about the 
canned laughter was comforting. It was just after two in the morning when Charlie finally stopped fidgeting and fell asleep. My eyes shot open. The sound of rice scattering across tile echoed from the warm glow of the kitchen. I blinked hard and rubbed my eyes. Charlie was hanging half off his recliner, snoring softly. The couch where Owen had been sleeping was empty. It was 4 a.m. I'd fallen asleep, and Owen was gone. The squeal of the back door launched me from my chair, and I bolted to the kitchen. Hard bits of rice stuck to the bottoms of my feet. The bag was empty, and rice was strewn across the linoleum. I watched the hollow bag scoot across the floor, animated by the wind pouring in through the open door. The phone was sitting on the table, another blank text message on its screen. I ran to the open doorway, rain spattered over the floor. The back door swung wildly in the wind, slamming against the house. Owen! The wind blasted against me, silencing my call. I squinted through the downpour towards the water's edge. I caught a glimpse of Owen's orange t-shirt on the dock. Owen! Owen! Come back! What are you doing? Owen! I turned back to the house for my shoes, running headfirst into Charlie. What's going on? He didn't go outside, did he? I, I don't know. I guess I fell asleep. Guilty panic flooded my lungs. Despite the wind rushing through the open door, I couldn't breathe. It was hard to hear what Charlie was saying over the pounding in my ears. Jesus Christ, look at the waves. You don't think he'd go in, do you? I blinked and his shoes were on his feet. He straightened up and put a hand on each of my shoulders. He shook me once, hard. We're gonna get him, you and me. We're gonna go get him. But you gotta help me. We need a flashlight and life jackets. Anything that floats. The shed. It was all I could make come out of my mouth. He grabbed me by my shoulders once more. Do not go into the water unless I tell you to. The waves are too high, you will drown. Yeah, yeah. okay. He nodded once and bolted out the door in the direction of the shed. I was frantically squeezing my foot into my shoe when the phone on the table chimed. I stood on one leg, paralyzed, gripping my foot. I felt the blood drain from my face. felt adrenaline surge through me. For a second, I thought I was going to puke. I dropped the shoe and picked up the phone. The screen was lit with a text message notification. I opened it. It was from an unsaved number. I read the single-sentence message. We're hungry. My shaking hands released the phone and it clattered to the floor. I shrunk away in horror, slipping backwards on the spilled rice and sliding to the tile. I heard Charlie yell from somewhere outside. Come on! Heard what I thought was a splash above the roaring waves. There came a second splash, and then the phone chimed once more. With a shaking hand, I picked it up off the floor and opened the new message. Owen belongs to us now. We were out there all night, Charlie refusing to leave the water with the search and rescue team, me shivering on the dock. Charlie told police about the phone we found about what Owen saw in the messages 
He left out the part about the messages he read himself, though. He said, Owen must have taken the phone into the water. And I didn't correct him. Charlie had been outside when I read the last messages, and I couldn't bring myself to speak, much less tell him what I'd read. And when I finally came back into the house to talk with police, the phone wasn't on the table anymore. It took the divers two days to find Owen's body. They never found the phone. for joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media 